Thank you. Open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. You're looking at verses 10 to 15. to 15. While you're doing that, just want to mention that we had a, a wonderful trip to Maryland. It was a great opportunity to service uh, with the church there, and they mentioned how much of a blessing it was and wanted me to thank you for your generosity. We were able to raise around $4,000 to help with putting everything in, but also for their playground, which is one of their uh, preschool outreaches um, in the community. And we are looking forward to having Pastor Mick back. He's going to do a series for us um, in the spring on Revelation and end times. If that interests you, it interests many. He's somewhat of a, if, as much as you can be on Revelation, an expert in, in the different positions, and he will be sharing his with us. So I look forward to that. But it was a wonderful trip, and you'll be hearing more about that when we have our Sunday school, mission Sunday school class. We hear now the word of the Lord, Ecclesiastes 8, 10 to 15. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not actually executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it'll be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Father, we are asking now that you would give us insight into your word as you as we read it, as you proclaim the truth to us, I pray that you would direct us to know that which you would have us do in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things about studying uh, this book is if you've missed a few weeks, you'll be sure to bring up the topic again. And that's the case here uh, this morning. You'll recognize that over and over again in this book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has repeated that the wicked prosper. He's talked about the righteous suffering. uh, And he's also mentioned that both die. And it's that topic of death that is the great equalizer that he emphasizes It's one of the many great themes that Solomon has developed as he's been searching for meaning in life. It's not a very pleasant topic, of course, but it is vitally important that we consider it. It's occupied Solomon's thought throughout the book, and for good reason. 
He's seeking to understand life. He's seeking to live wisely. And you cannot live wisely if you don't remember a day is coming when you will die. You see, the certainty of death frustrates all our efforts to find meaning in life apart from God. And so it's no surprise in this letter, in, the, in his writing, and in his pursuit, Solomon frequently speaks of this theme. He mentioned it in chapter 1. He mentioned it in chapter 2. He mentioned it in chapter 3. He mentioned it again in chapter 5, chapter 6, in our chapter, chapter 8. And then after this, he'll mention it in chapter 9. And then he'll close the book and mention it again. Death and dying. He could not avoid the subject as he looked at life under the sun. Death is one of those obvious facts of life, and Solomon was facing up to it, and he was indeed bracing it. In fact, in our chapter, he had been meditating on God's sovereignty over life and death in chapter 8, verse 8, reminding us that we do not determine the day that we will die. No man, he says, has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. And so these topics, these issues, these themes, vanity and wickedness and righteousness and injustice and death and and, and the sovereignty of God, God himself, were the main subjects that occupied his mind. And as he's thinking about these things, as he's uh, mowing over them and, and considering them, suddenly he has this experience uh, that shifted his whole perspective on life and death. Look at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. He, he observes the burial of a wicked man. And even though they may seem to be all powerful, God has determined that they must too die. And there is what he sees. But, he, but there's a punchline to this. Even in their death, they seem to win. And they seem to prosper. Solomon goes on to say, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Even though they were wicked, they used to go in and out of the synagogue, the place for the, quote, righteous. And now they are honored with a funeral procession that that begins in the synagogue. And, And more than that, they are praised in the very place where they committed their wicked deeds. Uh, This also is vanity, says Solomon. It's kind of absurd. One writer wrote that the wicked can attend the synagogue during their lifetime and then at the end of their life be honored with a splendid funeral and the praise of all the people. It seems that it pays to be wicked. I mean, if if we consider it ourselves, if it's going to give me an advantage... Right? I mean, if it's going to give me honor as this man, if it's going to give me praise, and if at the end there'll be this exceptionally well attended funeral where people will gush over me, why not be evil? That's the question he's answering. Why not be evil? And it's not surprising that people could actually think this way. Solomon explains why in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. If wickedness can give you an advantage, and Solomon says it does, and and justice is not going to be served, you might as well be wicked. That's how the logic goes. We understand this all too well in America. Wickedness rarely receives the punishment it deserves. 
Many crimes are just simply not even prosecuted. Other crimes are prosecuted and savvy lawyers can get their clients off the hook. Uh, other sentences are delayed time and time again. And, and the delay in punishing crime, Solomon says, actually encourages people to do more evil. How many criminals that get away with it or get let go, then they come back and they commit another crime? It happens all the time. The answer is many, many people. Think about, uh, think about it. We understand all too well what Solomon is saying here. We, 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 we intuitively know. When I was younger, uh, my mother's parents, my grandparents were crippled in a car accident. And they were hit by a drunk driver. And the trial went to court, but the guilty got off. Nothing happened to him. No justice. Uh, how many times have nationally televised court cases come to the verdict not guilty when everybody in the room, both the, the prosecutors and the defendants, everyone in the room, those watching us on TV, we all know they committed the crime, and yet they get away with it. We have these televised funerals, and I'm not talking about the queen here, but they have experienced these nationally televised funerals of men or women being praised by celebrities, and it's all over the news, and diplomats are there, and we know when they lived their life, they lived in wickedness, and here they are getting praised. Where is the justice in it all? It doesn't seem to make sense. And it's actually even worse than that. Solomon says in verse 12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. It's not that the wicked just get by and are never caught for their crimes and then are praised at a funeral. It's more than that. They actually prolong their life by their wickedness, Solomon says. Their wickedness gives them an advantage. We read in verse 14, the wicked seem to prosper. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. The wicked get paid the dividends of the deeds of the righteous while the righteous suffer the payment of the wicked. The wicked write bestsellers that make them rich while their victims suffer the consequences of their actions. You ever notice how somebody goes to jail and they get out early and then they write a book and becomes a bestseller? This is how I was a terrible person. Let's read about it. And they become rich. And there's no better illustration actually than the crucifixion. In John 18, we read that Pilate goes to the people and says, look, I, I don't find Jesus guilty. I find no guilt in him. But he understood that there was this custom that I should release one man to you at the Passover. And so this is, is Pilate's way of trying to get out of this. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release to you Jesus? I don't, I don't think he's guilty. And they cry out, not this man, but Barabbas. And then we read, now Barabbas was a robber. Jesus is innocent. I find no guilt in him. Barabbas is a thief, and they let the thief go. Jesus pays the debt of the wicked while the wicked go free as if they were innocent. And there's no justice. One writer has said, this doesn't make sense, and human wisdom cannot comprehend this anomaly. How can God, how can God allow wicked people to prolong their life in their evil doing? Where is the God of justice at a time like that? Now, before answering that, and we're going to look at that, 
Let me address this issue on a, on a, a kind of a different level. What Solomon says does indeed relate to these big crimes that, that people get released, like Barabbas, say, or, uh, or the prosperity of the truly wicked, but it's also true of these little injustices. You know, you go to school and someone cheats and gets away with it while you work hard and, and it goes unnoticed. And, or maybe a coworker steals your idea and they get a promotion, but in order to give them their promotion, someone has to be let go and you're the one who gets fired. Uh, local governments waste the taxpayer dollars while nothing gets done and, and the needy suffer. Think of the spouse who commits adultery, but the courts favor them, and they get custody of the children and a hefty monthly paycheck from it. And you suffered a a loss of love and loss of loyalty. It doesn't seem right. This happens even in the body of Christ. Think of the churches out there that completely and utterly compromise the gospel. They won't tell you Jesus died and rose again, and they prosper and they grow while a faithful church suffers and struggles to keep the doors open. Every day this happens. Be it nationally televised crime or the little injustices that go unnoticed, wickedness, it, it, it eats away at the fabric of society like a cancer. And it's because of this that life can seem so vain. It becomes meaningless. This also is vanity, Solomon says. And so why? Why is this the case? Why is this true? And what can be done about it? Well, why is this true? Why is this the case? Well, that answer to that question is easy enough. Look at verse 11. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Why do we act wickedly? Why do we see wickedness? It's because we're evil at heart. We are unrighteous people and and therefore do unrighteous things. It's obvious enough. This hardly needs to be mentioned. He's mentioned it over and over again. Like I said, he's repeated himself. We have learned throughout this study that man apart from Christ is totally depraved. Not that we're as bad as we could be, but our wills and our desires are corrupt and bent toward evil. This is why, by the way, when the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, as Solomon says, man sins more. It's, it's kind of in our nature. When God gave the law, I want you to think about this. God gave the law, Ten Commandments, but the other laws in the Old Testament, the law period, his commands. He, he did it for three reasons. One of the reasons is to point us to a need for a Savior. You know, when you, when you read the law... It says, thou shall not, or whatever the laws are, or even the positive laws, you must do this. And you realize, wow, I don't do any of that, or I surely don't do it perfectly. The law's purpose is to remind us that we need to find salvation outside of ourselves. We cannot keep the law perfectly. We have to look to someone else. And so it points us to Jesus Christ. Paul talks about that. That's one use of the law. Another use of the law is to guide us as Christians. Well, we want to know how to live, and God gives commands, and so we obey those commands. That's what we should do. It guides us for Christians. But another use of the law is to, re, is to restrain sin. This is called the civil use of the law. It threatens man with punishment for breaking it. I can think of a whole host of sins when I was a teenager or before I became a Christian that I would have committed in addition to the ones I had already done if I didn't think I'd get in trouble. 
And so the law refrains, it helps, excuse me, restrain people from doing evil. And see, when justice is not swift, when people don't get punished for certain things, their heart forgets that purpose of the law, and they forgets the consequences, and, and you're emboldened to do greater evil. When I committed my first robbery, that was, I stole a candy bar, and, and I felt guilty, and, and they said, oh, it's okay, and I gave it back, right? I thought, well, I didn't get in trouble, and we won't go into how far, how far that got, but you get the point. I, I didn't suffer the consequences of that. And so you're emboldened to do more. And the reason is because our hearts have a problem. They're full of evil. Jesus said this, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. And so even when justice is met, people sin because they're sinners. And they commit these things because it flows out of their hearts. Why did I commit that robbery? Because I was a thief at heart. And that's who we are. And so that is the why question. Why is there wickedness? Because man is evil at heart. Well, what about the what question? What do we do about it? Well, we can enact laws. That's true, and the Bible tells us we should do that. There should be laws that restrain sin. Um, There's not much else we can do from a human standpoint. The government, though, has its job. Paul said, if you do wrong, be afraid, for the government does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. God has established the government to punish uh, wrongdoers, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, on the wicked. That'll help curb crime, but that's not the application for us because it's not the ultimate answer, and it's not Solomon's ultimate answer. And so what are we to do? Solomon says, here's the answer to all this, faith in God. Oh, it's so simple. We can all go home, just have faith, and it'll all go away. No, it's true that Solomon was troubled by injustice in the fallen world. He knew it. He was wrestling with it. He was struggling with it, but he was also convinced that God would make things right in the end. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know, yet I know that it'll be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. Even though the sinner's evil may be great, and even though it may prolong his days, Solomon also takes it as a matter of faith that the vindication of the righteous is just a matter of time. The answer to evil and injustice in the world is faith in God. You know, it's interesting. When you go through this book, Solomon says throughout the book, I saw. In in, in chapter 2, verse 13, then I saw. In chapter 2, verse 24, this also I saw. Chapter 3, moreover, I saw. Chapter 3, again, so I saw. I'm reading these on purpose. Again, I saw. Then I saw. Chapter 4, chapter 4. Again, I saw. Then I saw. Chapter 8, over and over again. He says, then I saw. Then I saw. But then we read here, yet I know. 
He can't see the justice with his eyes. It's not there. There's only injustice. It's not available to his physical eyes, especially while evil parades itself in this world and still spreads across the earth. And so it's not an observation he is making. It's the answer of faith. In light of what's going on, through the eyes of faith, he sees and therefore he knows. For those who fear God, they can look past all the evil and wickedness in this world into the next. They can look past the injustice and know that there will be justice. It'll be well for them. By fear, he means the all and holy caution that arises from the realization that we serve a great God. It means to trust in God and then live accordingly. See, God-fearers know that God isn't far off somewhere. They know that he's not distant. He hasn't left the scene. God has not forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten about the righteous. He hasn't kind of turned his back and everything's gone crazy. And now the wicked are getting away with their evil. And, and see, if you look at the world just through the eyes uh, of the flesh, all you'll see is that. It seems like everybody gets away with it. No, but see, for the righteous, we fear before him. We walk by faith and know that, that in the presence of Almighty God, justice will be done. But that's our problem. One writer says most people, including many Christians, go through life hardly realizing that they are constantly in the presence of God. It's obviously true of the wicked and why they sin without any regard. But he goes on to say, see, if the person who fears God knows that God is always near... He is with us when we are at our beds at night, worrying about tomorrow. He is with us when we have an opportunity for witness, and we're not sure what to say. He is with us when we have a sudden emergency and and, and are not sure how, how to handle it or go about it. He is with us when we have all kinds of struggles in our life, and we're saying we don't understand. He's with us at home in the bedroom. He's with us in the kitchen. He's in the car. The writer says he's even with us at the grocery store at the football game. He's with us wherever we go. He's with us when we're alone. And he's with us when we're alone, even though we're surrounded by many people. Why? Because we fear before him. See, to live a God-fearing life is to live in the constant awareness of the presence of God. He's just as close as a prayer away. See, a God-fearer knows that justice will someday win in the end, and the wicked will get their due. In fact, Solomon says, verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days, and notice what he says, like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Now, in the previous verses, Solomon said the wicked will prolong his years, But here he says he will not prolong his days like a shadow. And so what does he mean by like a shadow? Well, he could be using it poetically. A shadow becomes exceedingly long at the end of the day. It almost stretching out over the horizon. And so in that case, he'd be using it poetically. The wicked never reach the evening of life. Unlike the lengthening after death, 
his days of prosperity will come to an end. That's one way of interpreting it. Another is the, is the translation. Some translators translate this, which are a shadow. And so what Solomon is saying, because the wicked do not fear God, because the wicked do not have faith in God, their lives will not flourish beyond the grave. In either case, uh, their time of prospering ends when they die, and then they face certain judgment, the judgment of a just and holy God. Hebrews 9 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, the eyes of faith see that. Now, I came across this story. I'm not sure where I got it. I, if you're reading Dr. Riken's commentary, it may be in there, but I, I, I'm not sure. In either case, there's a story of a man who was uh, approaching a Little League game. He wanted to go to a Little League game. He came to a dugout, and then he saw one of the boys there, and he asked him, what, uh, what's the score? And the boy said, it's 18 to nothing. We're behind. And, and, and this guy said, wow, I, I bet you're discouraged. And the boy looked up and said, why should I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten the bat yet. <laughs> now, the person who tells the story applies it. He says, it, you know, sometimes in life it seems that the wicked have 18 and we have nothing, the righteous. But the reality is our time at bat has not yet come. And at the judgment, when it does, we will be victorious. We will be vindicated for living in the fear of God by faith. Oh, we're mocked now. We're laughed at now. Uh, but at the final judgment, we'll be vindicated. I can remember when I got saved, somebody saying to me, uh, so how's it feel to know that you're going to live the rest of your life in boredom? And I didn't know. Maybe I was. You know, I, I just became a Christian. I was going to get boring now. I mean, I know some things I wasn't going to be doing anymore. Now that I'm a Christian, so hey, would it be boredom? How would I know? Well, see, I'll be vindicated in the end if I'm a believer. The promise will be fulfilled completely at the final judgment. Maybe you remember the words of the thief on the cross who hung next to Jesus. Remember, Barabbas gets let go, but there is a thief there. There's a thief on each side. In fact, two thieves were crucified that day, one on either side of Jesus. And this is what Luke tells us. One of them mocked our Lord, but the other thief rebuked him by saying, do you not fear God? And this, as one preacher points out, this thief demonstrated his own fear of God by asking the crucified Christ, Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, that is the way. That is the way for anyone to begin living in the fear of God. Ask Jesus to save you. And so let me, let, me, let me plead with those of you who seem to be prospering. Maybe you're here and you're saying, well, I prosper in my wickedness. Yeah, you do. Solomon said there are going to be people like that. And, and, and you don't trust Christ because things are going okay. I, I told another story in the early service. I had a friend, another story in the early service. I had a friend, a television preacher writes, and, and the Christians don't seem to be, and you come and go from church each Sunday, and people are honoring of you, and maybe even they praise you, and you seem to be prospering, I, I don't know, and, and you're prolonging your ears, years, you're here. But understand, for those of you who are here, and this is true of you, maybe there's not many, maybe there's one, whatever it is, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe in 20 years, we'll be attending your funeral. 
And so, and then what? And then what? It'll be too late. It'll be too late for you. Your days will be over. And so don't use the delay of judgment that God has shown grace to you. Uh, Do not use that not to repent of your sins, but turn to Christ, repent of your sins. This is how Peter says it. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So you may be blinded to your wickedness, but God will not be caught off guard. A day will come. Your wickedness will be exposed. I may not be able to see it. The person sitting in the pew next to you may not be able to see it, but God will. And Peter writes, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you see, hear that? It's, it's looking past this world through the eyes of faith. It's living in the midst of the world and all its injustices and all the wickedness and looking past it and waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, Paul, I mean, Peter says, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. And so don't, don't let the slowness of swift judgment be an excuse to continue in your sin, thinking you just have one more day and you can, you'll repent tomorrow, tomorrow may not come. What you need to do is say that the fact that God has given you a breath today, he has shown you mercy. And the fact that he's given you one today doesn't business. Fear before him. Believe in Jesus Christ. Well, let me close. I'll, I'll address the God fears, which I trust is probably most of the people here. One day, let me say this, based on the word of God and Solomon's words, all will be well. Oh, we look out into the world now and things don't look well at all. In the meantime, Solomon says things are bleak maybe, but he commends to us joy. We read, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Earlier, Solomon said, nothing better than joy, Ecclesiastes 2. Then in chapter 5, he said he had seen joy, but now he's, he's urging us to experience joy to have this experiential knowledge of joy. I commend joy. The word commend is Hebrew for praise. There there is vanity under the sun. That is true. The world can be a terrible place. There is injustice at every turn. And it's hard to understand. That is true. We we see wickedness everywhere. Or we we just lose someone we love. Or we see them going through suffering while the wicked prosper. And, and, and we toil. And, and in toil, it's very difficult. That is true. But what Solomon is saying is that there is joy for those who fear God. 
It's true joy. Joy that is worthy of praise. Joy in the ordinary things of life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you may recognize the name. He once wrote, Our life is not only a great deal of trouble and hard work, it is that. It is also refreshment and joy in God's goodness. We labor, but God nourishes and sustains us. There is a reason to celebrate. God is calling us to rejoice, to celebrate in the midst of our working day. And if you know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you understand the irony in this. And so as believers in Christ Jesus, we can have true, lasting joy today in the midst of all the troubles. Why? Because we have a hope, a promised hope, a bright hope for tomorrow. I'll let the scriptures close us out. We read, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then he says this, Paul, therefore encourage one another with these words. There's injustice. There is wickedness. There is evil. But they do not have the last word. Christ has the last word. And so you can rejoice even in your struggle and toil. Let's pray now. Our Heavenly Father, we hear these words. And we often are envious of the wicked. We see how they prosper. And we wonder why. Help us, Father, to look through the eyes of faith and know that a day is coming when all will be made right and that your saints will be glorified while those who lived in wickedness will spend an eternity in hell. Help us to have faith and even love for those who are outside the faith that they may too believe. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.